Welcome to Manage Tools. Today's topic, hiring overqualifieds, part three. Here we go. Folks, before we start, I just want to mention the value of having a Manager Tools license. It's $15 a month or $165 a year. You get all the show notes from the entire archive, plus a year's worth of show notes going forward. And in this cast, as long as this one is, it's going to be easily over an hour, maybe hour and a half, um, asking your directs to listen to it, particularly if you have managers reporting to you. It'll take a long time to listen. Reading the show notes, though, and highlighting it would take maybe 20 minutes. So it's smart to have the show notes, and you get them with a license. So take a look. All right, Mark, we're into um, the third part of a very long, but good. I mean, actually more than good. I think this is a pretty awesome uh, topic, but we've had two parts already. So it might, might be useful to summarize where we've been for those who didn't listen to the first two parts for a while. <laughs> I think the first summary includes my apologies that it's so long. Um, this is one of those casts that you really have to be down in the weeds to understand it. And as much as I know that shorter casts can be better, um, there are some things I just can't distill, and um, we want people to know exactly what to do, and this one just takes a while. And we're very particular about hiring practices. Yeah, I, know. I was going to say, you know, why don't you go longer on, on a topic that is really important to managers, you know, rather than hiring people? I mean, that, come on. Yeah, <laughs> yeah who cares about hiring, right? It's only the most important thing you do. Okay, so what we did was we basically started off saying overqualified candidates are also qualified. It's not a negative to be overqualified if you think of it simply as meeting the bar, the standard of can this person do the job or not. And, and too many people are worried about hiring them, but that's not the problem. The problem is not hiring them. They're probably qualified. The issue is can you retain them? And retention is a managing problem rather than a hiring problem. And so what we started with talking about was you interview for skills first. What most managers do is immediately embarrass the, the candidate by saying, you, you know, you're, you're overqualified, as opposed to interviewing them and finding out that they are, having them prove they are overqualified and relaxing them and getting them comfortable and making them feel like, wow, I'm doing well in this interview. If you do that, um, you put, put yourself in a situation of really finding out whether they are overqualified rather than they're just a braggart. Um, and you get to know the candidate a lot better and it will help you make a determination about their emotional set and um, their attitude, which is super important in the interview as well. Good. And our next point is being candid about their strengths, right? And the, the easily corrected mistake that most managers make in this kind of interview is to think that overqualified is a negative, right? And we've talked about it. And of course, it's not. <laughs> right. It's wrongheaded. Yeah. I mean, look, it, it, of course, there's a possibility. There's a weakness there. And good interviewers find weaknesses, right? That they may have a concern. They may have something in their background that causes concern. And we want you to look for that weakness. But their skill level is still not the weakness. Right. right. Okay? Rather than diminishing their strength, and heaven forbid you act as if. I mean, and I think this is what a lot of managers do. They act as if the, the, the over-strengthness is a weakness. And it's just not. And, and it, it's insulting to the candidate to imply that. Rather than diminishing their strength, effective managers are candid and open about the, the strengths and saying, you're really quite qualified. So be openly respectful. Be willing to comment positively about the candidate's level of ability. I mean, if, they, if you ask a question about X and they tell you 1.5 X in terms of skills, at the end of that answer, if, if they communicate it well, now you may not like their communication skills, which is a completely legitimate reason not to hire them, 
But if you like their communication skills and they clearly have sharp technical or, or industry-specific skills, tell them that. Say, I, I just got to tell you, that's, uh, uh, it's excellent. So you'd actually compliment them in the interview? Oh, absolutely I would. Wow. You know, this, is, this is the mistake that other managers make. They, they are saying, well, you know, that's great, but some of those skills I don't need. But if you did, and they probably think that they're overqualified, they think they're good, right? And, but if you compliment them, is it going to increase the likelihood that they're going to be a little lorded over you a little bit? If you point out specifically what specifically they shared that was distinctly good, that you don't, you're not afraid of building them up, but look, they know they're good. If we're asking them standard questions about the skills necessary for the job and that they're truly overqualified for that job, they should be better. And, and, and I think too many managers dismiss the strength and they avoid it. They don't ask about it. They, or worse, they assume it away. Oh, well, this resume shows that this person is overqualified. And they've said three times in the first 15 minutes, the first interview, whatever, that they're overqualified. And another thing they do is they dismiss it by suggesting that the skill that you used to have before you were doing this other job that was better than this one is, is now a weakness for what we need because your skills are probably rusty, right? Or that the advanced skills are unneeded. I'm like, yeah, okay, if you can hire somebody, if there are two people for a job, one person's qualified and the next person's more qualified, all things being equal, you'd hire the person who's more qualified, okay? But, but if you try to dismiss, if you, you try to belittle, because you know there, you think that there's some cataclysmic failure in their background or something, and you belittle the strengths that on their own are actually a, a, a plus for you, it just worries or angers or belittles the candidate. And some managers think that that is good. I even had a manager tell me once, well, you know, you'd want to belittle the candidate, right, Mark? Because you interviewing, you're supposed to be tough. No, just the opposite is true. Yeah, I've, I've met interviewers like that. <laughs> We know them. We we you, yeah, you and I yeah, know we them do. yeah we do we know you personally. I, I'm I'm astounded by the idea that that being dismissive or being arrogant about someone's skills or or lording your power over somebody else by being disrespectful of what they've done, it would be a good thing. Manager Tools recommends that all interviews are conducted with politeness and fairness and kindness. There's no reason to be rude or dismissive or anything else. Nothing wrong with being direct and saying, if somebody says, how is that answer? Say, well, that answer wasn't good because I asked you X and you told me Y. Uh, and, that's, and then you would say, and that's okay, and let me ask it again. I want to give you an opportunity to succeed. Yeah. You can do that. You can be discriminating and tough and discerning and be polite and professional. It's 2013. I'm afraid that many managers are developing bad interviewing skills and habits and acting unprofessionally or oh, I agree. they can, they oh, can get I away with things agree. today that they won't be able to get away with in a couple of years. And then all of a when sudden- When the market's hot. Yeah. yeah. You, you still got to be thinking of selling. At some point, you can offer, but the person has to want to come work for it. Today, it's easier than it will be. That's for sure. Yeah. And the idea that finding good people would require a different tone in different markets is ludicrous. <laughs> it just is. Yeah. Good people respond to toughness and kindness. That's what they, they want to come to work for a boss who's a good person who will get more out of them. Yeah. Right? And, and look, look, guys, the, part of the reason we're telling you this is strategic. We've discovered that when we do this, 
it spreads the field. This technique of being polite and of seeing a strength, an overstrength, if you will, as simply a strength, and being candid about it, telling them they're doing well, and that was a great answer, and so on. It makes the good candidates better because it doesn't go to their head, and it makes weak candidates sloppy. Yeah, well, that's the softball I was trying to throw you earlier that you just passed up oh, on. Sorry, you, stick a, you, know, you took a strike. But the the point was that if if you do compliment somebody, right, and they become overconfident, and then that overconfidence comes through in the interview, right, and they, they act cocky, for example, right, then we see things like their attitude. That's right? what we want, right? What we want is, is questions that cause good people to look better and people who aren't right for us to look worse. That's the whole point of spreading the field. It's the whole point of making it easier to choose, first of all, who meets the standard, and then second of all, of the people who meet the standard, who's best. Yeah. Yeah. And that brings us to the next point, right? What we're doing here is, in addition to interviewing for skills and fit, we're interviewing for part of fit that is related to why they might be a potential problem or why they might be good, which is interviewing for resilience and attitude. And a lot of managers miss this. If an overqualified candidate turns out to be potentially right, the typical interview that got them there is not enough, right? Regardless of their fit, we've got to consider the impact of their being overqualified and the potential impact of the professional blemish on their background, what effect that will have on their performance and their retainability. And we'll talk about this later, but guys, if you don't know why someone is, you ask them early on, which we don't recommend, why they're overqualified and interviewed for the job, and you don't find out, dude, you can't do that. You gotta find out, you have to know. And there's a simple test, it's called the boss test, but we'll come to that. Look, whether the candidate you're interviewing has a, a flaw or not, or a blemish on, I love that word blemish, on their professional background, there's a fair chance that there will be some tension in the workplace once they start. Other folks in your team are gonna wonder whether they're, how they're gonna fit in and what value is being given them and whether their extra skills make that person jump ahead of them in their pecking order, right? And it, look guys, if you doubt that your directs would do this, ask yourself whether you would do it if somebody who had been at your boss's or boss's boss's level came in and became your peer. And everyone knew, had seen the resume because you had been involved in the interviewing, this person clearly has done more than me, right? You would wonder, well, how is that going to play out in terms of my relationship with the boss and their ability to get promoted versus mine? Yeah. Or their ability to be number one and get a bigger bonus even if we don't want to get promoted? Is that a reason for a manager to say no, the, the effect that would cause on the team? I don't think so, no. Um, it, well, it would depend on whether or not, it goes back to the candidate. If the candidate is qualified, overqualified, and therefore qualified, and is professional about it, I'm going to go a little overboard, uh, I'm going to change your question slightly, and, and the team starts whining about it, that's a management problem, right? Mm -hmm. That's my job. If I can bring in somebody better, then I have to communicate with my team. And by the way, you guys think this cast is long, there's another meeting to have about your folks and say, hey, look, this guy's overqualified. And, and it would depend on the group I had, whether or not, if it was a fairly homogenous group, I could do it in a staff meeting. If it wasn't, I would do it during one-on-ones. And I'd say, look, don't worry, right? They're coming in and they're gonna do the job and I compare people and the job rather than, I, I don't sit around comparing all of you, it's not a big gigantic horse race all the time. But no, I don't think that that would be a reason. Now, if, if I thought my team 
would not handle it well, I would consider that, but I don't, I mean, I can't imagine having a team that wouldn't handle it well. I don't. Good answer. Right? Good answer. I, I, was, I was hoping you would get that one right since I, I didn't, I didn't prep you for it. <laughs> yeah. And look, this, that brings us to another key principle of interviewing, which is job first, candidate second. That's a, one of manager tools unwritten up until now rules. That means we compare every candidate to the job. We determine whether or not the candidate can do the job based on the skills and abilities, traits and characteristics that are required for the job. Then, then, as in, and then, we also interview the candidate for their own strengths and weaknesses. And we have to know that based on their background and what we've learned in our interviews and so on. And in this situation, candidate second means after we decide that for the job they're qualified because they are overqualified, we have to ask about their attitude and resilience about failures and their ability to bounce back from failures. And that requires us to create some questions specifically for the overqualified candidate we're interviewing. And each one of them will be different. And this is why when people say, oh, I can interview anybody on a moment's notice, I'm like, how, how do you do that? <laughs> that's, like, that's like a trainer saying, oh, I don't need much time with the material. Give me 15 minutes and I'll be able to train it. What? How, yeah, how does that work? Uh, yeah, no wonder people don't like trainers. So um, each one will be different. Now, we can't tell you exactly which ones you would ask, but we can give you some examples. So um, here are the kind of things we would recommend you would ask. Tell me about a time where you failed notably at something. Give me an example of the significance of the failure, how others responded to it, and then how you responded to it. Notice, by the way, we're not asking how did you solve the problem. We're asking how they responded to it. Um, or you could ask, tell me about a setback you had on a project or an initiative. What did you do wrong? How did you respond? And how did you correct it? I'm going to tell you, there are a lot of people. There are a lot of people who worry me with answers of, oh, that's never happened to me. I was thinking of my answer to that. And it was something along the lines of like, um, where do I start? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I said, well, I got fired. I mean, I, I don't know. Does that qualify as a setback? <laughs> Maybe setback on steroids, right? And, and look, it is possible the candidate won't be able to come up with anything significant. And, and they would probably pitch it if they were a little bit clever as, gee, I'm thinking, but I really can't think of anything, which is actually them just trying to cover up the fact that, yeah, something bad happened. But look, that behavior would be misleading at best. And a follow-up is recommended. If you, look, failure to admit or to talk about failures is a warning sign, big time. Oh, big time. So clearly, I mean, it's best to consider overqualified as simply qualified, right? The overqualified yeah. means they're qualified. And yeah. we're going to show respect for their skills and additional skills they bring to the table. But that doesn't mean that there aren't real risks, right? Yeah. The risk, of course, is the managing, what we talked about earlier. Um, but what the manager, when you, what so many managers tell me when I talk to them about interviewing is the risk of an overqualified is what mistake did they make? Right, but that's not the risk. The risk is higher in them um, because everybody's made mistakes. We want to show respect for the skills, show respect for the additional skills, and this falls in the, re the retention risk. Fall risk falls into the candidate second category. An overqualified person, overqualified person, is at a greater risk of loss, even if they accept your job. They're more able than simply qualified candidates. It's funny when I say qualified candidates, it makes them sound blah, uninteresting, when in fact, it's so hard to get hired by a manager tools manager that, that qualified is like, awesome. Yeah, um, we should call this the over awesome call over awesome cast. But anyway, yeah, they're more marketable in the marketplace. 
and they can be considered for more, for more lucrative jobs and potentially more career-enhancing jobs if they're overqualified. So when we interview, before we offer, we need to make it clear to the candidate that we understand the risks of their potentially elevated value. But we also tell them we're going to be sensitive to their communications about the role they've accepted. So there's no sense. Managers seem to think that it's a, that interviewing is this sort of confidential game or something where I don't want to reveal what my side is doing when the other side knows exactly what you're doing and, and right. vice versa. There's no sense hiding our knowledge of the situation of an overqualified candidate. It's better to be candid and even blunt with politeness early before we offer to reduce an acceptance based on a misunderstanding. Don't assume. Wow. I, I bet yeah. you that's pretty rare. <laughs> yeah. See, managers, managers think that they're secretly trying to find out what the candidate did that was wrong or bad. And the candidate's probably thinking, I'm trying to keep the manager from understanding how bad my failure was, if in fact there was one. Well, I think that belies the amount of power that an interviewer has. An interviewer has enormous power, and provided you're ethical and professional, you use that power. It's, it's a form of role power. It's a special form, a, a transitive, a transient form of role power, and you just use it when it, you don't want to use it the whole time, but you use it when you have to. And so let, let me give you an example. Here's how it might sound. I hope you've gotten the sense that I respect your skills that you would bring to the team. You're qualified for this role. There's no question. I think you also have the necessary attitude and resilience. That said, let's say I'm, I'm interviewing Mike. That said, Mike, hiring you is a risk for me because you have value in the marketplace that we can't reward you for, at least right away, in this role. That means you come to me with an elevated retention risk. And by the way, at this point, if they interrupt and say that they'll stay no matter what, l let them interrupt and listen to them and evaluate the sincerity, but don't let them take you off of giving them the entire bit that I'm sharing here. What this means for me, Mike, is I'll have to do my best to encourage you to stay. I'll have to work differently with you about the near-term future than I might with somebody with less skills than you. Now, don't overread that. You would still be one of the team, and to almost anybody else, I'm going to manage you the way I manage anybody on the team as an individual. You're not going to be special other than the fact that everybody's special here because that's how I manage. At the same time, be honest, I'm going to hold you to a higher standard. It won't help me or the team for you to be anything other than humble about this opportunity. If I get any sense that you're trying to show you're not one of the team because of your experiences, my encouragement for you to change that will be swift and pretty direct. <laughs> I won't stand for that. Come to work for us for, because you want to be here, not because you see us as a means to an end, right? So, so we tell them that, and, and their response to that is helpful to us. But this is part of interviewing, everybody being clear. I don't want a Romeo and Juliet, right, where they're right for us and we're right for them, and we end up not there because we're not candid, or... We hire, and then we discovered there were all kinds of unstated assumptions that we both had that we didn't address, that we didn't put on the table. And it's possible that you put your unstated assumptions on the table as a manager, and the candidate doesn't, and you decide still to hire them. That, that happens, and then it works out just fine. And the fact that you feel like they had an opportunity and they didn't, that you might choose to say no for that reason, it, it wouldn't be black and, black and white that you would do that. But what would be wrong with being candid with somebody? Ask yourself, isn't that what you would want? 
And don't you still have the managerial ability to handle someone who behaves in a way that you were, you're surprised by? You can always get rid of them later and you could say, you know what? I made a bad hire. I've done it. It happens. It's rare, but it happens. And you reduce the chances that you're going to have that problem if you're candid, uh, candid about the retention risks in advance. Yeah, I like that. I, I tell you, the whole candidness, the whole candor relative to professionalism and politeness and kindness in an interview is a really hard set of behaviors to argue with. It really, it, it does. It spreads the field. And I'll tell you something else. If you're candid and you're professional and you're polite, while you're also very tough, it makes managers feel great about what they're doing rather than beating people up or trying to guess or being secretive or thinking this is spy games or something like that. People don't right. like that and, and it causes it causes bad feelings. Yeah, and I, I guess the other part of it is if if you act, you know, tough but professional and, and kind and all that and that directness turns that candidate off and they end up not accepting oh, think jobs. Yeah. Like, Good. If, if that turns them off, I hope they don't yeah. accept because I'm going to have a problem later on when I start getting yeah. the feedback, assuming I'm a manager tools manager. Yeah. And this goes to the point of if you're not a candid, ethical, kind, professional, effective manager, this will cause problems for you later. If you're a jerk, if you're not a good manager, if you're abusive to your directs, being candid in this way is not going to be good because you're going to create problems of retention. And, you know, probably once a month, I get an email from somebody who says to me, hey, Mark, what do I do about my colleague who does this? And then they say something really ugh, yucky. That's my professional word for it, yucky. Like they scream at people or they tell them, you better not do that ever again. Or I can't believe I ever hired you. And then they say the last line of it is, by the way, this person says they're a manager tools per manager. Oh, God. you know, yeah. And, and that's the kind of person who says, I'm a manager's manager. I'm going to interview the way Mark and Mike say regarding overqualifieds. And then they wonder why they still have retention problems. Well, the retention problem is not because of the way you interviewed the candidate. It's because you're a jerk and you said you weren't in the interview. And they feel like they have buyer's remorse because they got sold a bill of goods about who you were. Yeah. And this is doubly bad for an overqualified candidate. Exactly. Right. Because because then they realize, well, lucky me, I am overqualified and I've got six months to find the job that I really wanted. Maybe I was struggling to pay my bills before, but now I don't have that problem and I'm going to quietly do my job. I'll ratchet down my workload by 10 percent or 15 percent, which is fine because I've got plenty of skills uh, in reserve and I'll spend more time looking for a job. Yeah. So if you know you're a bad manager, maybe overqualified is not... Not the, yeah. not the place for you, but that's a whole nother thing. Yeah, admittedly, we try not to say that very much, right? Look, if you're a bad manager, right, you can't, you can't fake it, right? You, yeah. People will figure it out, right? Just, well, yeah, what I want to say, if you're a bad manager, go get a different job. Yeah. <laughs> you know? Yeah, well, true. Yeah. I worry a little bit that folks have think we've covered this, but I don't think we have. I mean, there are potentially hidden failures here, right? They, I mean, oh, they may gosh, be overqualified yeah. and they may be coming to you because there are, in fact, big failures that are hidden and, and you need to get to those. Yeah, look, and, and sometimes they're known. And if that's the case, that's fine, right? And there's nothing wrong, by the way, with explicating, having the candidate explicate a, a, a known failure. Yeah, I would do it every time. If there's a known failure two years ago or one year ago that caused them to have a, a setback or um, there was a gap in their professional life of two years for whatever, then you, even if it was already covered, say, I know we've covered this, but I want to cover it in the context of interview, you would ask. 
But if you don't know what most can't, which most managers do, and I think we talked about this before, is they ask right up front. And that's just a bad way to start an interview. You know, we talk about at the start of an interview doing some chit chat and um, really warming up the candidate and explaining what's going to happen and tell them the questions they're going to ask. And then usually you ask, tell me about yourself, which surely every candidate in the world knows that's the first question that 90% of professional interviewers ask. And that's designed to be a softball to show, I'm going to give you a question that you ought to have known enough to have prepared for. You should hit this one out of the park. And of course, what ends up happening is, because it's such a great question and because it's a softball to good candidates, it's often a wicked Sandy Koufax fastball to a bad candidate, right? And it spreads the field. So we don't go right to the unspoken, maybe not hidden, but unspoken failure or mistake or glitch in their background right at the beginning. You do ask specifically and directly about it, but you do that after fully evaluating them for the role. There's no need to know why and how they failed if they don't meet your standards. But if you don't know what caused their setback, if they're overqualified, quote unquote, And by the way, that's not as unusual as you might think, guys. Don't worry that you don't know. You're not supposed to have super secret spidey vision and be able to know. If you don't know, it's not only okay to ask, it's it's required. And this gets to the point I made earlier. If you're thinking, really, it's required? Yeah, it is. Because how's it going to feel when your boss asks the interviewer and, and then asks you, why is she interviewing here? She's so clearly overqualified. And you don't know. Dude. Your boss is going to look at you and say, what are you doing? Um, now, if, if your boss asked before you interview somebody why they're overqualified or, you know, what happened, say, I don't know yet, but I'll find out in the interview. And when he says, woo, I got concerns about that, then what you say is, this is, I love these kinds of parts of the podcast. <laughs> what you say is, you don't have to mention manager tools. You can simply say this. Look, I found when I've interviewed that it's better if, if is to check on somebody's qualifications first. If they're not qualified, I don't have to worry about why they're qualified or overqualified. I just say no to them and wish them well. If they are in fact qualified, and I think this person is, I want to validate that to prove it to them. Then once they're comfortable with me and I'm comfortable with them, I'm going to ask them the questions that are a little bit more prickly and I'll find out what I need to find out. And, if, and now look, what most bosses will say who aren't clever is this. Well, you ought to ask first because that would save you an hour or two of interviewing. There are two ways to answer that. Depends on your boss. The first way, if your boss is just arrogant or, but you, but you suspect that he or she won't overrule you, just say, yeah, I hadn't thought about it before. Good, good thought. Good that point. Is. And leave it like, yeah, good leave point. It there. Good point. <laughs> yeah. And don't say, I won't interview them. Just say, good point. Right. Sure, boss. Then the other thing you would do is say, um, actually, it's been my experience that effectiveness is really what I'm shooting for in interviewing and I'm willing to spend more time. So I don't mind. I don't figure, I don't feel an interview of an hour long is a waste of an hour if I've determined that a person is not right after their resume says they might be. Yeah, I'd probably take the first. Just yeah, like uh, yeah. it depends on your boss. Yeah, it depends it, on the boss, look, if, yeah. I'm just thinking of the boss that would say that. Is, yeah. yeah, if you were my boss and we've known each other for 30 years and you said, what are you doing, Mark? Why don't you find out? Why don't you ask right away what happened? I say, no, dude, trust me on this. Uh, it's better for me to let them sell me on their skills, find out how good they are, and then I'll ask that later. And I don't mind losing an hour, hour and a half, dude. It's good. It's good practice for me. It's the most important thing managers do, and and I want to be good at it. And I want to be able to teach somebody else, and so I might have somebody else sit, on the, sit in on the interview. Yeah, and I'm a good boss, so I say, yeah, good point. All yeah, right. yeah, good well point. Well done, you. Good point. Yeah, well done, you. There you go. <laughs> 
So look, there, there are two ways to do this with the candidate. There's a soft way and there's a more direct way. I used to say soft and hard, but I don't want to do that anymore. I could say soft and dark, but I won't do that. You can say soft and more direct, okay? The soft way is to say something like this. I don't understand why you're interviewing for this job. You're clearly capable of doing more than this. Why not interview for roles that are more suited to your background? Again, this is happening well into the interview after you've already validated that they have the skills you're looking for. Now look, this gives them the option of explaining the mistake or the error, if there is one, that put them in the situation they're in. It'd be very difficult to answer this question and not mention a key failure or mistake, even if it was one, two, three, four years ago. That was the precursor to where they are now in their career. Now, look, some of you are thinking, and I think good analysis, why wouldn't I ask them the question first to save me this trouble of finding out sooner? And I'm just going to say it again. You interview for skills first. I've already said this like twice, right? If you ask this question first, you're likely to get the least possible chance at a truly honest, candid answer. Yeah, that's the key. Yeah, they're not warmed up to you. They're expecting this question early. Yeah, it's our job to rule people out, guys, but it's also our job to find good people. If we're going to get a lousy answer to a question, in part based on when we ask it, we ought to ask it when it will be most effective, not when it will be most efficient. And I alluded to this when I was giving you how to defend against your boss. Efficiency thinking in interviewing leads to short, incomplete interviews and hiring bad fits. Effectiveness thinking leads to more time spent interviewing. And guys, I get that but it also decreases our chances for false positives. False positive being saying yes to somebody who's not right. Guys, the one place you surely don't want to try to save time, in other words, I'm so busy, I need to save time on things, is the most important thing you do. That's like a CEO saying, gosh, I've got all this other paperwork to do and legal stuff to keep track of, so I really probably ought, and ought not to meet with my customers. Yeah, and if you've been managing for any more than two weeks, we don't need to convince you of this, right? You know the costs associated with a bad hire, right? Do it, do it once and you yeah. won't want to do it again. Problem is you don't know how to prevent it. Well, we're sharing that. Yeah, 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 exactly. Yeah, this is the, this is goes to the, the, the law of um, every warm body has a halo. If all you're looking for is a warm body, guys, everybody looks good. The problem is the halo goes away the day you hire them. Okay, but, but look, suppose that, that that soft approach doesn't work. They don't give us what we're looking for, or we think they're not being as candid as they could be. By the way, when I used to teach this, I used to say, we think they're not being honest with us. And I've discovered that's not good, because some people hear that and go, oh, they're misleading me on purpose. Um, no, that's not, it, you know, you, we're trying to be candid to elicit candor in return, but being completely candid and being honest are two different things. You don't, you don't have time in a two-hour interview or in a one-page resume to share everything. And there are things that every single person who hired you doesn't know about you that you chose not to tell them. And they're trying to convince you to hire them. Okay, so they're not being dishonest. Now, I think in this situation, it'd be very hard to say you were honest. And if in fact, there was a black mark on their career that led them to be interviewing for this job, it would be hard for them to say I was being honest and not mention that thing. But suppose they don't, and we question their candor. The more direct way is to say, please be completely candid with me about why you're interviewing for a job you're overqualified for. I didn't hear it in your previous answer, you might say. If there's a significant failure, or a personal or professional change causing this. You haven't mentioned it to my satisfaction. Now's the time. Now, this is on the head of a pin, the turning point of an interview for an overqualified, but it happens two thirds to three fourths of the way through the interview 
maybe not exactly that, maybe a half, after you've validated that they're overqualified or that, meaning differently in the manager tool speak, that they're qualified. They can't wiggle out of this question. And if they, gave you an, if they give you an answer you don't trust, that is an answer you can trust, meaning you don't trust this guy. And yeah, you could be wrong, but a false negative, saying no to somebody who might be right, is infinitely better than a false positive, a false positive that was based on you didn't want to say no, but based on a gut feel. And, and this gets us to the point, which we'll talk about more in the, the Effective Interviewer series, which I think, Mike, comes out in 2014, right? It does. Um, intuition matters in interviewing. Effective interviewing doesn't eliminate the need for intuition. It only gives us more data to be certain about the intuitions we do have. Now look guys, this is a bit like what we teach at the Effective Communications Conference. When you interact with other people, your brain tries to simplify the world for you by not telling you every single behavior you the other person engages in, which in a three to four minute conversation might be as many as two to three to 400 behaviors. You know your conscious brain can't handle that. And so your unconscious brain sees all the behaviors and feeds up phrases like warm or friendly or smart, which are not behaviors, but are conclusions about a person based on behaviors you've seen in those first couple of minutes. Well, that is, you have an intuition about a person. You don't know that the person is warm in two or three minutes. You've just seen behaviors that you characterize as leading you to believe they're gonna be warm in the future. That's a form of intuition. It's a form of gut feel. Well, one of the things that makes really effective interviewers is first of all, wanting more data um, by going longer. And secondly, wanting more, more data so that they will have more data to judge, to base their intuition on. Right? It's the difference of talking to somebody for an hour versus talking to somebody for a couple of minutes. So intuition's gonna come up, and the way we address it, for those of us who aren't naturally intuitive about other people, which is completely fine, even though actually we all are naturally intuitive, some of us just don't trust our gut, probably because we've been burned before, um, the more data you have, the more you're gonna trust your gut. And that's why you ask specific questions and spend more time with candidates to feel good. So when you feel good about them, the good feeling you have will be based on something you can trust. Thanks, everyone. That's it. We'll finish this one up. I promise you, I promise you, we'll finish this one up next week. In the meantime, have a great one, folks. So long.